What's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Prime Tip Sports Podcast, hosted by Joey Maylari. So tonight is Mookie Betts' return to Fenway Park. In this episode, I'm going to give my thoughts on the Red Sox and Dodgers weekend series. But before doing that, I'm going to talk about some news across the NFL to start. So we're going to start out with the Jonathan Taylor rumors that are currently going around the NFL that the front office of the Colts said that he has until Tuesday to find a trade. And if he doesn't, up until Tuesday, at that point, they're just going to roll with him being on the roster for the rest of the season. One team that is interested is the Miami Dolphins. But according to reports, the Colts not only denied Miami's first offer, but their second offer as well. So Miami sent a rebuttal, maybe trying to add more draft picks to the trade, whatever it may be. And the Colts front office said no to that. So we'll see what happens there. I think it would be a great addition, though, to Miami's offense, considering it would help open up the pass game even more for Tua Tagovailoa in the Dolphins' offense. And the Dolphins' offense doesn't really need much help. I mean, they already have two game-breaking talents in Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. One thing they do lack, though, is a little bit at running back. They don't really have the same firepower at running back that they have at wide receiver. But if you add a guy like Jonathan Taylor, that offense is going to open up even more and help Tua Tagovailoa get some more time to throw. And you have a running back like Jonathan Taylor, the defense has to be on their toes at all times, making sure they know what he, where he is, what the play could be potentially, and that definitely opens up some lanes there for Tua to throw. So we'll see what happens there. I think Miami would be a great destination, though, for Jonathan Taylor. According to reports, though, Indianapolis wants at least one first-round pick or a package similar in value to a first-round pick. There are two other teams that are interested, including the Denver Broncos and the Chicago Bears. I think the Bills could be a good landing spot. Once again, a similar situation to Miami. They have good firepower, Stephon Diggs, Josh Allen, but running back is where they lack that same talent. Even though they do have James Cook, who's a very good back, you would add a guy like John on the table with that offense, it would open up lanes even more for Josh Allen. I think if you look at where Jonathan Taylor is in his career, and then James Cook. Cook is a young back. He's on the rise. Jonathan Taylor's going into his prime. He's already in his prime. I think he'd be great in that offense. Only has one more year left on his current deal at $4.3 million as a base salary. We'll see if he gets an extension. He'll probably just get traded and be an expiring contract. He's only 24 years old. Did have a down year last year, but was unreal in 2021. In 2021, he ran for 1,800 yards on the ground, had 18 rushing touchdowns, 360 receiving yards, and two touchdowns in the air as well. 2022 was not the same, though. Only 860 rushing yards and four rushing touchdowns in just 11 games last season. We'll see if he can recover this year, but if he goes to an offense like Buffalo or Miami, that's going to be crazy to watch considering how much talent those offenses already have. If you add a running back like Jonathan Taylor, it would make it even more dynamic. Now I'm going to move on and talk about the news with the New York Jets yesterday or a couple days ago now, and that was Jets wide receiver Corey Davis retiring from the NFL. From a Western Michigan wide receiver, was drafted fifth overall in the 2017 NFL Draft by the Tennessee Titans. He finishes his career with just 17 receiving touchdowns, 3,800 receiving yards, and 273 receptions. Last year for the Jets, he had 32 catches for 530 yards and two touchdowns. Retires at just 28 years old. But if you look at that Jets wide receiver room, they're still going to be all right. Aaron Rodgers still has weapons to throw to. You have Garrett Wilson, Alan Dazad, Randall Cobb, Nicole Hodman. Then in the backfield, Brees Hall, Michael Carter, Delvin Cook. He'll be all right. Aaron Rodgers, but that's obviously a loss. They're losing a guy like Corey Davis since he is a home run hitting wide receiver. But respect to him, and I wish him nothing but the best in his retirement. Another retirement in the NFL yesterday was former Giants cornerback Prince Mukamara, who retired as a Giant yesterday afternoon. He played with the New York Giants from 2011 to 2015, 55 games with Big Blue in his career, seven interceptions in those five seasons, with 43 passes defended. 
Three forced fumbles, two fumble recoveries, and 225 solo tackles. He was a first-round pick in 2011 out of Nebraska, won the Super Bowl with the Giants in his first year as a rookie, was a great contributor for that Giants team, then ended up going to Jacksonville for a season after leaving the Giants, and then played with Chicago for three years, with his last year being 2019 in the NFL. His best year with Chicago came in 2018, where he had three interceptions, including a pick six, two forced fumbles, and 66 total tackles. Has not played in the NFL, though, since 2019. Great to see him retire as a Giant, as I always say. Once a giant, always a giant. Wishing him nothing but the best in his retirement. And some other news with the Giants yesterday that I wanted to discuss was the Giants trading for linebacker slash safety Isaiah Simmons from the Arizona Cardinals, who is still very young, only 25 years old, and is a great pickup by Joe Shane considering he only had to send a seventh-round pick to add a talent and an athlete like Isaiah Simmons to this Giants defense. It's an already strong Giants defense. The Giants defense is going to be good this year. You add a guy like Isaiah Simmons who has not even – unlocked his full potential yet, the Giants' defense just became even more dangerous. It looks like Simmons is going to end up playing inside linebacker for this Giants' system, which Wink Martindale has found ways for this Giants' defensive system to be a lot better than it was in the past. He's finally getting some pressure on the quarterback. You saw a guy like Dexter Lawrence really break out last season. Maybe Isaiah Simmons takes a step up this year as well. Isaiah Simmons was a former Clemson standout linebacker who was the eighth overall pick in the 2020 draft out of Clemson. I liked him a lot. I wanted him actually in the 2020 draft. I was stuck between Andrew Thomas and Isaiah Simmons in that 2020 draft. The Giants ended up going with Andrew Thomas with that fourth overall pick. And now the Giants have Simmons three and a half years later. So things worked out there for the Giants with Simmons and getting Andrew Thomas, obviously, a fourth overall. Simmons has not missed a game in his NFL career, which is great considering he's always available. The Giants have had a lot of injuries over the years. Considering Simmons is always healthy, that's definitely a plus. And now you have a chance to unlock even more potential there with him being in big blue. He had 105 tackles in 2021 combined, also 99 combined tackles in 2022 as well, so just about 100 tackles combined in each of the last two seasons. Last season, he had two interceptions with a pick six, seven passes defended, two forced fumbles, a fumble recovery, four sacks, 99 total tackles, and then four quarterback hits as well. He also had four forced fumbles in 105 combined tackles in 2021. So he's been able to get a lot of success at forcing fumbles in the NFL. I love this addition to the Giants' defense. I think he's going to play a similar role to Landon Collins did last year with the Giants. Simmons is a tremendous athlete and a solid in-man coverage as well against tight ends, something the Giants have really lacked and struggled with is tight ends and covering them over the middle. And Simmons is a little bit better with that in-man coverage than linebacks the Giants have had in the past. Simmons only has one year left on his deal. He'll be a free agent after this upcoming season is over, but the Arizona Cardinals are rebuilding. You could look at his stats from his last preseason game in Arizona and think they traded him because he really struggled. No, I think it was really just because they're rebuilding. They'll take a draft pick back knowing they're really not going anywhere and they're fighting for the first overall pick in next year's draft. But I love this pickup by Joe Shane, sending only a seventh-round pick. Isn't much at all. It's very low risk and with potential for a very high reward as well. So great pickup there by Joe Shane. We'll see how it works out for the Giants. One other news line across the NFL over the past couple days was 49ers quarterback Sam Donald will be the backup for San Francisco. Now this brings into question, what does that mean for Trey Lance? Is Trey Lance going to get traded or is he not? I think Donald's a better quarterback than Trey Lance. I think Donald's even better than Brock Purdy as well, which I've mentioned this now multiple times on my podcast here. I've said before, I think Sam Donald, if he were to be the quarterback in this 49ers system, he'd be a lot better than the Sam Donald you've seen in the years past. He'd finally have a great offensive system that Kyle Shanahan has built, which he's really lacked his whole career. He hasn't really had a good offensive system around him, has weapons now that he hasn't had in his whole career, including Debo Samuel, Brandon Ayuk, George Kittle, Christian McCaffrey, Elijah Mitchell. There's so many weapons there in that San Francisco 49ers offense. And then it also have an offensive line, something he hasn't had in his whole career either. Whether it was in Carolina or the Jets, he didn't have coaching. 
like he has with Kyle Shanahan in an offensive system, like he has with Kyle Shanahan, doesn't have the offensive line, and didn't have the weapons in his career either. I think Donald would be great in this 49ers system. As for what's going to happen with Trey Lance, I think Trey Lance is going to end up being traded at some point. And there's two teams that come to mind when I think about a potential team that could trade for Trey Lance. Minnesota, they don't really have a backup plan after Kirk Cousins is gone. And the same thing goes for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. They're really just rolling this season with Bacon Mayfield as a quarterback, hoping maybe to find a quarterback in the draft maybe next season. I know they got Kyle Trask there as well, but Bacon Mayfield was just announced as the starting quarterback. I think Baker probably ends up being the quarterback this year, and then they're back in the market for a quarterback next season. I think if Trask was ready, he would have started right now, considering he got to learn behind Tom Brady and still didn't really learn enough to try to beat up Baker Mayfield, who has struggled in his NFL career since being drafted first overall. That shows that Trask probably isn't the guy there. So I think maybe Trey Lance could be a guy that the 49ers would trade and maybe send him to Tampa Bay. Trey Lance might not be the guy either, though, considering they traded up all that draft stock to go up and get him with the third overall pick, and it didn't work out. That's a telling sign as well. And if you can't beat out Mr. Irrelevant in Brock Purdy and can't beat out Sam Donald, who has struggled in his career as well in the NFL, then that's probably not the best sign there for Trey Lance. But we'll see what happens there. I think there will be a team that will end up trading from, probably not to give up much back in return. And we'll see what happens. Maybe a team just rolls the dice and says, let's see what we can get out of him and trade. Maybe a draft pick or two in return and maybe just take a shot on him. That's what, what's probably going to be the case at some point. And San Francisco will be fine with it. They can get a draft pick back in return or whatnot. That would probably be enough for them to okay it and just say, yeah, we'll take whatever back in return. I don't really know what his draft stock would be considering he didn't really play much in the NFL. After going down with that torn ACL last year when he was the starting quarterback, he didn't really show enough for a team to go and trade for him, and he hasn't played in the NFL really much at all. Even before last year, he didn't play much considering it was Jimmy Garoppolo as a quarterback there before him. So there really isn't much to go off of, and that's why it's tough to know what his trade value would be on the open market. Now I'm going to move on and talk about baseball and starting off here with Mookie Betts' return to Boston. This is his first time facing the Red Sox since the Red Sox traded him in 2020. He played six seasons with Boston from 2014 to 2019. He had a 301 batting average in his career with the Red Sox, 139 home runs, and an 893 OPS. Won the World Series with the Red Sox in 2018. Was also the AL MVP in that season as well. A four-time All-Star with Boston, four-time Gold Glove. And also is a three-time Silver Slugger Award winner as well with the Boston Red Sox. Then ends up getting traded to the Los Angeles Dodgers, and they win a World Series right away in 2020. Now his two World Series rings to his name. 34 home runs a season for Mookie. He's one off his career high from last season, which he hit 35 last year. He also has a 310 batting average this season, a 1009 OPS, which is the best in the National League, and a 605 slugging percentage, which is the best in the National League as well. He has a hit in 27 of his last 28 games. In his last 28 games, he's 45 of 109 at the plate. With a 413 batting average, 7 home runs, 24 runs batted in, 11 doubles, a 706 slugging percentage, an 1194 OPS, and 30 runs scored. That's all in his last 28 games. Miraculous numbers there from Mookie Betts. He's also had multi-hit games in 10 of his last 11 matches. In those 11 games, he has 3 home runs, 12 runs batted in, a 585 batting average with a 902 slugging percentage and a 1533 OPS with 2 stolen bases over that 11-game stretch. In August, he's been red hot in 21 games, a 463 batting average, 7 home runs, 21 runs batted in, an 817 slugging percentage, and a 1334 OPS. Absolutely ridiculous considering all those numbers he has there listed. And he's really closed the gap in the National League MVP race, even though Ronald Acuna Jr. still is the favorite. Mookie Betts has really made a ways to close that gap over the last month or two, since the trade deadline especially, and then obviously... Since the All-Star break as well, he started to get hot right before the All-Star break and then really continued it after the All-Star break. And then now, as you see, in the month of August, hitting 463 since August 1st. 
That is obviously a crazy stretch. He's been red hot at the plate. He was hitting only 279 on August 1st, and that was at 310 for a batting average on the season. And I know one thing with the Mookie Betts return to Boston, there's going to be a lot of people talking about the trade, which I understand is obviously a hot topic, and I've talked about it a million times in the podcast, so I'm not going to go fully over it again like I already have a hundred times now between my radio show and podcast, but I will say this. I think at the end of the day, I think Mookie Betts wanted to leave Boston. I know he's been saying he wanted to stay. He even said it again today that he wanted to stay in Boston, never wanted to leave. And he also did tell Pete Abraham of the Boston Globe yesterday in Cleveland that he was never offered a $300 million contract from the Red Sox. And that might be true. Who knows? I'm not really too sure. But I feel like at the end of the day, I think Mookie Betts wanted to be in the spotlight and wanted to go to a big team like the Dodgers. I think it's really worked out for Mookie. He's won another World Series and obviously has had a great career with the Dodgers already. Now in his fourth season with the Dodgers, he's been doing great for them consistently over the last four years and has been a perennial all-star his whole career. Everybody knew when the Red Sox traded Mookie Betts, they're trading at that time the second best player in the game of baseball to Mike Trout. Everybody knows what Mookie Betts is capable of, and I understand that. I've talked about it a million times in the podcast already. I said that the Red Sox should have got back more in return for Mookie Betts. At the time, they could have gotten back more in return. Now, when you look back in hindsight, you should say to yourself, yeah, they probably should have gotten more back in return, which is fine. At the end of the day, you can't go backwards. But the Red Sox did trade David Price in that deal. The Dodgers chewed some of that contract that was remaining, and that was part of the reason the Red Sox didn't get as great a return back because they said, okay, we'd rather give the Dodgers David Price, have them chew some money, and that means we'll get a little bit less back in return prospects-wise or young players-wise, which is fine. That's how it goes for being a GM. Sometimes you want to dump contracts, and that means you don't get back as much in return. But the reality of the situation is this. Everyone's going to be blaming Haim Bloom for the Red Sox trading Mookie Betts, which, yes, he was the guy in charge, the one that traded Mookie Betts. But I think it was more of a management decision than a front office decision because I don't think you're ever going to get a general manager job and say, oh, trading one of the best talents in the game of baseball is going to be better for us than keeping him on the team. I blame John Henry and the Red Sox management for letting Mookie Betts leave. And maybe Mookie Betts wanted out anyways. I think that's probably part of the situation as well. I think he was probably going to leave anyways and not come back. And especially if he wasn't going to be getting the $300 million contract that he wanted, which if Mookie Betts is telling the truth that he was never offered $300 million, obviously you're going to want to leave. He feels like the Red Sox are lowballing him. They were. If you're not going to offer Mookie Betts, a guy that's that good and has been that great for the Red Sox in his career, a $300 million contract, of course he's going to want to leave. But I think it worked out for Mookie. I think he wanted to be in the spotlight in LA, and it looks like he's been enjoying every second there. But now he's coming back to Boston. It's obviously a sentimental time for the Red Sox, whether you're a fan, whether you're a former teammate of Mookie Betts, whether you're Mookie Betts himself even as well. It's obviously sentimental looking back at all those times that Mookie Betts had in a Red Sox uniform. And I'm happy the Red Sox had Mookie Betts at some point because he's one of my favorite players in the game of baseball. Being able to see him play for the Red Sox was obviously something that was very special. And now I'm a Dodgers fan as well because Mookie Betts is there in LA. But I think the reality is this. I think he wanted to leave Boston. I think he's probably going to leave anyways, especially if he wasn't going to get the money that he wanted. He wasn't going to stay for a hometown discount. He was going to go out and get $300 million from anybody in the open market. So if the Red Sox were going to say, we're only going to give you $250 million, of course he's going to want to leave and go and get that extra $50 million because that's probably what every single team in the game of baseball would have given him at the very least was $300 million. And if he wasn't offered it, that's on the Red Sox there. And I think it's more on management because at the end of the day, I know Haim Bloom came from that Tampa Bay system that never really dished out many big contracts, and it's all about analytics and just finding gems for less money. But I don't think you're ever going to think trading Mookie Betts makes your team better. I think that was more John Henry saying, we're not going to give him that monster contract that he wants. Let's end up moving him and just get something back in return. Let's get under the luxury tax, which is something that John Henry wanted the Red Sox to do for years, and then Haim Bloom comes in and ends up getting him there which there was a lot of work to do with that Red Sox team. High and Bloom stepped in. And I think the Red Sox have made some strides, even though High and Bloom haters don't want to give him as much credit as he deserves. And then the same goes for people that are big High and Bloom supporters. They don't want to be critical of him in any way. 
But I think the reality is Hyam Bloom's done more good with his Red Sox team than bad. And I think you've seen some strides, especially this past offseason. He hit on Justin Turner, Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin, James Paxton, Masataki Yoshida. That's just to name a few. He's done pretty well. Adam Duvall as well. He's done pretty well over the last year or so. So we'll see what he does in the next year. But I don't really blame him too much for the Mookie Betts situation. Should he have gotten back more in return? Yes, in hindsight, he should have gotten more back in return. But the reality is, I think it was more of a management decision with Mookie Betts being traded. And I think he wanted out anyways, and I think he wanted to be in the spotlight in LA, and I think it really worked out for him. That's just how I feel. But who knows, at the end of the day, this is all just my thought process, and everybody's going to have a different opinion on it, and no one really knows the real situation except for Mookie Betts. Now I'm going to transition to talk about the Dodgers and how they performed as of late. They had 19-3 in the month of August, 27-10 after the All-Star break, the best in the MLB since the start of August, and the best in the MLB since the All-Star break as well. This is going to be a great reunion for the Red Sox and the Dodgers. The Red Sox have a lot of former Dodgers, and the same goes for the Dodgers. They have a lot of former Red Sox, including Mookie Betts, J.D. Martinez, who's injured right now. He's been very good for them this season. Kika Hernandez, Ryan Brazier, Joe Kelly, all former Red Sox that are now in L.A. And the Dodgers manager, Dave Roberts, had one of the biggest plays in Red Sox history when he had a famous steal in Game 4 of the ALCS in 2004 versus the Yankees. Ended up sparking the Red Sox 3-0 comeback versus the Yankees. And started the end to the curse of the Bambino there with that stolen base. So he's back in Boston. And then former Dodgers that are on the Red Sox, you got Ellis Rodugo, Justin Turner, Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin, Connor Wong, even though he's a minor league with the Dodgers, was in that minor league system with the Dodgers at one point. So I consider him a former Dodger as well. And then Alex Cora, the Red Sox manager, did start his career in the MLB with the Dodgers. So there's a lot of reunions here between the Red Sox in the Dodgers. It should be a fun series to watch. Now I'm going to give you a preview of the pitching matchups with tonight's matchup being Lance Lynn on the mound for the Dodgers. He's 99 with a 5.6 ERA. Since being acquired though by the Dodgers in a trade with the Chicago White Sox, he's made four starts in his 3-0 in those four starts with a 1.44 ERA and 25 strikeouts and 25 innings pitched. Red Sox have Cutter Crawford on the mound. He's 6-6 six six on the year with a 3.66 ERA. The last outing for Cutter Crawford, he went six innings, giving up just one hit, which was a home run to Aaron Judge. One earned run, five strikeouts, two walks, and a hit batsman. He's had a hit batsman in three straight games. Hopefully, he can find a way to control that tonight. He had 82 pitches in his last outing, and that was at Yankee Stadium in the Bronx. Saturday's matchup would be Julio Rios on the mound for the Dodgers, a left-handed pitcher who's 11-6 on the year with a 4.15 ERA. On the mound for the Red Sox, it'll be a lefty as well. James Paxton, who is 7-4 on the year with a 3.79 ERA. The last four outings for Arias, he's really looking like the Arias of old. 4-0 with a 1.44 ERA and a 184 opponent batting average against him. With 27 strikeouts and 25 innings pitched. James Paxton's coming off a rough start against Houston where he gave him 9 hits and 6 earned runs in 4 innings pitched. Then on Sunday, there's no pitching matchups announced yet. Now I'm going to give my predictions for the series. I know it's a bold take, but I think the Red Sox take 2 of 3 in this series. And I thought that would be miraculous, and that's a hot take part to most people. But considering where the Red Sox are right now and how much they need these wins, they need these wins right now more than the Dodgers do, I think the Red Sox would be desperate for a win. I think they went 2 of 3 in this series. And that would be miraculous, as I said, considering how good the Dodgers have been in August. I'm actually going to tonight's game with a couple of my buddies from BC, so that should definitely be a good time being able to see Mookie Betts Freddie Freeman, James Oatman, all in person, and also get to watch the Red Sox as well. I'm a big Cutter Crawford fan. It should be a fun game to watch. So I'm excited to see Mookie Betts' return to Boston, and I'm excited to see the video that the Red Sox have for all of the former Red Sox players that are on the Dodgers now. So now I'm going to give a recap of what happened in yesterday's game between the Astros and the Red Sox. The Red Sox ended up winning that game over Houston 17-1. 
And uh, leaving Houston and going back to Boston with a series split against Houston, a series where they were down 2-0 in the first two games. And then the Red Sox found a way to win not only Game 3, but Game 4 as well. Yesterday in Game 4, the Red Sox were up 11 to nothing after three innings and never took their foot off the pedal in that game. 24 hits for Boston in yesterday's match. Everyone in the Red Sox starting lineup had at least one hit and one run batted in. And everybody in the Red Sox starting lineup got on base at least twice safely, which is very impressive. The Sox needed a game like this, especially in the midst of a tough game stretch where you're playing Houston for four, the Dodgers for three, and Houston for three. This is a time when the Red Sox need to be hot and find a way to turn things around, and that was obviously what the Red Sox did yesterday. They had some monster games from Alex Verdugo, Will Yarabreyu, and also Connor Wong. Verdugo was 4-7 in the game with two runs scored, two runs batted in, and he also hit a home run in the first inning to get the scoring going. Abreu hit a huge two-run home run in the second inning for the first home run of his career. He was 4-5 in yesterday's game with four runs batted in, two runs scored, a walk, and a double. He hit eight total bases in yesterday's game. He was doing it all against the team that traded him last year at the trade deadline when the Red Sox traded Christian Vasquez to the Astros. They sent back Abreu in return. So last year at the trade deadline, he goes from Houston to Boston, and now he gets a chance to go up against Houston. He ended up making the best of it, going 6-12 of 12 in that series. With a home run, five runs batted in, and a 9.17 slugging percentage. Obviously a very short sample size, but he's been very good in those 12 at-bats with the Red Sox. And as I said, doing it all against the team that traded him, which is obviously great for him. Connor Wong was 4-for-6 in yesterday's game with four runs scored, two runs batted in, a double in eight total bases. So the Red Sox got eight total bases out of Abreu and Wong apiece, and then seven total bases out of Alex Verdugo. What a stretch there for the Red Sox. Obviously, the Red Sox needed a game like this. The Red Sox with 10 of 22 with runners in scoring position. That's something they struggled with in games one and game two. They struggled with guys in scoring position. They couldn't really get hits and get guys across the plate. Yesterday, they did that, though. 10 for 22 with runners in scoring position. Still left 14 runners on base, though, to Houston's 11. But nevertheless, the Red Sox still won the game 17 to 1. Brian Bay was on the mound for the Red Sox in yesterday's game, going seven innings, giving up nine hits, one earned run, four strikeouts, three walks, and 103 total pitches. And according to reports, Brian Bayer went up to Chris Sale after the Game 2 loss and said to Chris Sale that it was up to them to get the Red Sox back on track and the Red Sox needed them to be strong in Game 3 and Game 4. And that ends up being the case. Brian Bayer and Chris Sale both delivered for the Red Sox in Game 3 and Game 4 and ended up getting the Red Sox back on track. I love seeing that out of young Players like Brian Bayo seeing the passion, not only to try to win and get the Red Sox back on track, but he also sees, hey, the Red Sox need me to step up right now. This is our time. We have to get back on track. I love seeing that out of Brian Bayo, and he delivered yesterday for the Sox in a big way. J.P. France started on the mound for Houston. He went just two and one-third innings pitched, giving up 10 earned runs, 11 hits, three strikeouts, two walks, two home runs allowed, one being to Verdugo, the other being to Abreu, and only went 81 pitches. He's had a good year overall for Houston, but obviously yesterday was not his day. So the Red Sox now have a big series going up against the Dodgers. Hopefully the Red Sox can win two of three. If the Red Sox go one out of three, that wouldn't be the worst considering how good the Dodgers have been in the month of August. But I think the Red Sox are capable of winning two of three in the series. And hopefully tonight is a night where they start out this series hot and get a win with Cutter Crawford on the mound. So it should be a fun night at Fenway Park. I'll give you guys a recap of that probably tomorrow before I give one more thought on the San Jose State and USC game. I'm going to talk about that probably in another episode tomorrow. So right around then, I'll give you guys a recap of tonight's game. And hopefully the rain does hold off. It's been raining all day in Boston. So I'm hoping there isn't much rain at Fenway Park. And the Red Sox and Dodgers are able to get this game in tonight. So now I'm going to close the episode talking about Steven Strasburg's retirement. He just announced yesterday that he would be retiring in September. He's going to have a whole press conference and talk about his career, which 
Ultimately, at the end of the day, didn't really work out for him over the last few seasons since trying to come back from an elbow injury. But I do respect this with Steven Strasburg. He tried rehab for the last couple of years to try to get back on track and just never was really able to do so. But he did end up being such a big part of that Washington Nationals World Series title in 2019 where he made two starts in the World Series against the Astros. And the Astros actually struggled against Steven Strasburg. He only gave up four runs in those two outings against Houston in the World Series. And he also had 14 strikeouts in those two games with Washington winning both of those games. Really gave everything he had to that Washington Nationals team, especially during that run. And that's part of the reason he was never the same again. Damaged his elbow after that giving everything he had to that Washington Nationals team. And even though they did win the World Series, he ends up derailing his career with injuries after that. He had injuries before that, but he never was the same pitcher after that 2019 World Series run. He has not pitched in the major leagues since June 9th of 2022. He actually underwent elbow surgery in 2021, was trying to make a return from that, and just never fully recovered. He was the former number one overall pick in the 2009 draft, a three-time All-Star for the Nationals, won the World Series as well, as I said, in 2019. And unfortunately, it was just inevitable and was coming for a while that he was going to retire but now you get the official news yesterday that he will call it a career 13 years with the nationals and he was a three-time all-star a 113-62 record with 1723 strikeouts and a 3.24 era overall in his career he also in 2019 reached 1500 career strikeouts and at that point was the fastest pitcher to reach that muck in in his mlb career so imagine what he would have done without all the injuries. Finished his career not only first in strikeouts in Washington Nationals history, but third in whip and then second in wins. And if you look at his contract, he signed a seven-year, $245 million deal with the Nationals after they won the World Series in 2019. And at that point, was the biggest contract for pitcher ever in MLB history. But since he signed that contract in 2019, he only pitched in 31 and one-third innings. For the Nationals since signing that. 31 innings is what he pitched after signing that seven-year, $245 million deal. And a lot of people are going to be asking, now what's the deal with this contract? Do the Washington Nationals get any money back? Does he choose some money just to retire? No. Actually, it was all guaranteed. And the contract was not insured health-wise. So the Nationals are on the hook for its entirety Every single dollar. And this comes from Bob Nightingale. He said, Steven Strasburg will continue to be paid $35 million annually through 2026 with about $11 million deferred each year. He would then receive $26.6 million in 2027, 2028, and 2029 in his owed deferred payments. And like Bob Nightingale did mention in that quote, the contract was not insured by Washington, so the Nationals are on the hook for its entirety. So obviously a tough end to the career there for Steven Strasburg, but when he was healthy, when he was on the mound, he's one of the most dominant pitches in the game of baseball. And even though he was never the same pitcher again after the 2019 World Series run, he did get a World Series ring out of it, but it did come at the cost of the rest of his career, considering he was only hurt after that and only played 31 innings since signing that seven-year $245 million deal with the Nationals. Obviously now you look back and you'd say that's one of the worst contracts in MLB history, which realistically it is, but at the time when he signed it, it was the biggest contract for a pitcher, and he was coming off a big run in that 2019 World Series run. Did have some prior injuries, though, with his elbow before that, but obviously I don't think anybody foreshadowed him going downhill with those injuries like he did over the past few seasons, but credit to him for trying to come back over the last couple seasons. He wanted to be out there for the Nationals, just didn't work out. Now he calls it a career, a career that, as I said, was a three-time All-Star and won the World Series in 2018 and is one of the best pitches in Nationals history, and even MLB history talent-wise, he was one of those dominant pitchers in the game of baseball when he was fully healthy and everybody saw that in the 2019 World Series run where he delivered so often for the Nationals in that run winning two World Series games against Houston. Anyways, that will conclude this episode. Thank you guys so much for taking the time to listen to this. As always, I appreciate it and hope you guys have a good one. Take it easy and enjoy your Friday night.